Hello, my name is Akiva Weisinger, and welcome back to the Misfit Torah podcast. Uh, today is going to be a little bit more scattered than usual. Uh, it'll be less thematic than usual. Usually I like to start with like uh, a sentence that encompasses a theme that we'll be discussing. But my goal today is really to run through a bunch of commentators who you should know about but aren't going to get their own episode for any variety of reasons. Number one, you know, there's not really a theme to talk about. Number two, uh, there's not really, you know, that much to chew on. Um, any number of reasons. Um, a bunch of these are commentaries I haven't used all that often, so I'm reliant on the work of others. Uh, so I want to thank the sources that I used here. Uh, for the Sajagon piece, uh, I relied on Masters of the Word by Rav Yonatan Kolach, which is a really good two-volume work on a bunch of commentators. Uh, it's done well. Uh, you can tell its intended audience is more to the right, but he's also trying to bring some degree of academic knowledge to that audience. Like for your section on the Zohar, um, he'll put it in the section with Chazal's commentary, uh, and he'll list the author of Rishim Bar Yochai, but he'll present the evidence for it being written by Ramosha de Leon, kind of half-heartedly refuting it, and then saying it doesn't matter. Um, full disclosure, Rabbi Kolech is my cousin, so I kind of got them for free, uh, but they are good books. Uh, for the rest of the commentators we're going to go through today, I relied heavily on Dr. Avigail Rock's series on great biblical commentators, which is up on Yeshiva Haratzion's website, um, which obviously has a lot of good free stuff. Uh, it's been a great resource, resource, even when I was pretty sure of what I was going to say, to say nothing of the commentators we'll see today that I needed a good overview of to know what to say. Um, sadly, Dr. Rock passed away recently after a battle with cancer, uh, which was just a punch, of gut, a punch in the gut for me to hear as someone who's benefited tremendously from her, out, from her outstanding work. Uh, also, um, her husband, Rabbi Huda Rock, uh, used to hang out in the back of the uh, base medrash at Yisraeli Torah, where I went to yeshiva. Um, so there was a personal connection there as well. Uh, but I want to make sure that I dedicate this episode to her memory. And I encourage all of you to read her series on biblical commentators in full, um, which is a lot of what this whole podcast has been based on. Uh, feel free to turn this off and go read that instead. She knew her better, stuff better than I knew my stuff, and you're just getting what she wrote secondhand, for, especially for this episode, but for some of the other episodes as well. All I add is a radio-ready radio face and voice and some commentary and, you know, my general... Uh, fun way of presenting things. So go do, go do that or stay with me and I'll try to be entertaining. Uh, so again, we're going to do brief overviews of important commentators that uh, deserve discussion but aren't getting their own episodes. So I'm going to try to answer uh, three slash four questions in each capsule. You'll see it's like three questions, but one of the questions I put in two parts. Um who they question one who they are you know where they're from where they lived um what question two what they do slash what's unique about them uh originally it was four questions and then uh i folded what's unique about them into what they do um and then finally when you'd use them um i'm going to be a little light on examples because we do have a lot of ground to cover and if you want more examples again go read dr rock's series uh, but I'll try to give you an overall sense of who they are and why you should care. So let's first talk about Sajagon, okay? Um, 
we're going to get a little bit more info on his background when we do the who's who the heck is that guy for philosophy because as big as his contributions to biblical commentary are uh, his contributions to philosophy are even bigger um, his work there is also much more fundamental and influential um, he's uh, he was lived in 1884 to 942 uh, Renaissance man uh, first of a type in Jewish history. Uh, he's a halachist. He's a very important halachist. Uh, but he's also, uh, he also does Tanakh. He does grammar, uh, does philosophy, does piyutim, uh, a type. And he's, you know, the type of person that would become very prominent in Spain and the Arab world, uh, Sfarad. Um, got it. He got into some major fights with Karaites. Karaites, for the uninitiated, are the people who uh, did not believe in the uh, the sages of the Talmud's uh, authority uh, to interpret uh, to interpret biblical text. So one of the primary motivations of his commentary was to ca- uh, counter the Karaites. Um, we'll get into more of that when we tackle his philosophy and also his uh, halachist. There's a major fight about calendars, which we'll get into. Um, he's described personality-wise as fearing no man, which again, you know, we'll get more into when we discuss the philosophy stuff. Um, I'm comfortable generally describing him as a badass. Um, so, what does he do? There are two parts to his commentary. Um, there is the first part is a straight Arabic translation of the Torah. Um, he's trying to translate the Torah into Arabic, uh, and the second part is a commentary with linguistics, philology, reasons for commandments, theology, refutations on attacks of, uh, uh, on attacks of biblical stories. Um, interesting note is his commentary, both the both parts of it, uh, are written in Arabic characters, and Ibn Ezra will claim that this uh, that his commentary therefore was for non-Jews as well. Um, at this point in history, Islam is, uh, you know, rising. Um, so part of what he was doing was, you know, providing the Jewish idea of what the Torah is to an audience that was becoming much more interested in, uh, you know, the le- the Judeo legacy. Okay, um, he fights a lot with Karaites on halacha because, you know, the Karaites will uh, the Karaites will. Uh, interpret things in the Torah counter to halacha. That's kind of what they do. Less so on agada, less so on you know the non-legal uh, portions of the Torah. Um, interesting, interestingly enough, he doesn't really have that much to to fight with them there. He's um, though occasionally he will. One famous example is that uh, because the Karaites were very into using uh, Talim Psalms. Uh, for their prayers instead of the prayers that were instituted by the sages. Um, he insists that all of the songs were written by David, uh, which was a minority position up until that point. Um, and people will still say all of Talem, all of Psalms is written by David. Um, he's the originator of that position, uh, and it's a minority position. Um, so what's unique about him? First of all, he's the first... Sephardite-style commentary. Uh, Pshat-oriented, grammar, uh, rationalistic, uh, interprets miracles uh, in a rationalistic manner. In fact, in his philosophy, he sets down the, you know, the primary source for how we deal with that. Like when you're talking about um, how do you reread irrational portions of the Torah, 
uh, and you know, you're hearing a, a class about this, the number one source they will use is from Sajigon in his philosoph- uh, philosophical work. Um, he's also the only straight translation in the medieval canon that I'm aware of. Uh, he's the only one that, instead of writing a commentary, also wrote a translation. Um, he pretty much created biblical commentary, but his impact was limited in non-Arabic-speaking world. Again, he wrote it in Arabic uh, characters. Uh, Rashi and Bahor Shor will, and we'll deal with Bahor Shor later, uh, they quote him, but neither of them spoke Arabic, so it must have been secondhand. So there was probably some, you know, uh, translation of Sajgun floating around that Rashi may have saw, uh, but uh, his impact was limited to areas to speak Arabic. Um, when you would use him, uh, because he's a straight translation, uh, and because the Arabic language is close to Hebrew, and because the area where he was writing is closer to the land of Israel than uh, most of the other areas that people are writing commentaries in, he's the most reliable source we have for translations of places, animals, plants, realia in general. Uh, I'm indebted to Rabbi Nathan Slifkin for this point. I remember I, uh, he pointed this out. Uh, I was reading his books when I was like 11, 12, and then I was like, oh yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I kind of trace my like development as an academic to that point where like, oh yeah, going to the original language might be like a you know, better, better way of finding out. Um, his, his commentary is also useful for understanding the irrational parts of the Torah. As I mentioned before, uh, he sets down the first principles for doing that. Uh, he overlaps a little bit with Ibn Ezra in terms of his approach. Um, you know, will interpret miracles in a rational in a rational way. Um, will defend Chazal's understanding of a uh, of the biblical text in terms of halacha, but is not really uh, going to do midrashim. Um, does a lot of philosophy. Does a lot of you know. Uh, uh, does a lot of theology overlaps a little bit with Ibn Ezra, which is, I guess, why he hasn't caught out, caught on modern wise, uh, because Ibn Ezra does a lot of the things that you would expect uh, that you would consult Sajagon for. But he's extremely important in Jewish history in general and biblical commentary. Uh, he, you know, I've said before that Rashi like invents the job of biblical commentator. Commentator Sajagon got there first, first of all, and second of all, like, invented the Sephardi style. Rashi invented the Ashkenaz style. Uh, Sajigon invents the Sephardi style. Uh, second one we're going to do, going back to Ashkenaz, uh, the Mahari Kara, okay? Uh, Rav Yosef Kara, uh, not to be confused with Rav Yosef Kara. The first time I saw the Mahari Kara's uh, uh, commentary, uh, it said, like, by Rav Yosef Kara in, you know, Hebrew letters. I'm like, Rav Yosef Kara wrote a biblical commentary? Um, Rav Yosef Kara obviously uh, wrote the Shulchan Aruch, uh, which we'll get to when we do Who the Heck is That Guy Halacha, which, you know, very, very important. So Rav Yosef Kara um, lived from 1060 to 1130, uh, lived in Troyes, France, uh, which you'll recognize my mispronunciation of from when we did the Rashi episode, and thus he was a student of Rashi. He's mentioned by both Rashi and Rashbam, and he may have been an influence on Rashbam, as we'll see. Uh, His commentary only survives on Navi and some of Ketubim, on, you know, prophets, uh, you know, early prophets, later prophets, and some of Ketubim. 
Uh, some citations of his commentary on Torah exist. Other commentators say, oh, the Mahari Kara says, by the way, Mahari Kara stands for, you know, Moran Harav Yosef Kara. Um, apparently, Kara, Kara comes from, like, his expertise in Mikra, in text. Kara, okay. Um, so, some citations of his commentary on Torah, which may or may not exist. It may be that, you know, they quote him because they heard him say it, or it may be that there's a commentary on the Torah uh, written by the Maori Kara, which is either, you know, was burnt in some Christian medieval burning, or, you know, is buried in some library somewhere. Um, he also transcribed Rashi's commentary. Uh, so, there's a chance that some of Rashi is actually the Maori Kara. There's a, there's a chance that, like, while he was transcribing Rashi, he, like, said, and, you know, also here's my, um, here's my opinion, and, you know, put it in there. Um, you know, I'm not going to deal so much with, like, and, and I, you know, made this decision in the episode of Rashi. There's a lot of scholarship on, like, what the correct text of Rashi is, and I'm not going to deal with it, because uh, that's not my degree, area of expertise, and, um, and... and I'm just going to deal with the text that we have today. Um, that's a little bit of a tangent. Okay, what he does. I'm going to quote Dr. Rock here, who sums things up for us. And also, she really seems to have a soft spot for him, uh, for the Myri Kara. Um, and, you know, one of the great things about, like, reading, uh, you know, a piece of Torah by somebody who loves that Torah is, like, you you under, you under get to understand why. Um, so let's, you know, quote the uh, main characteristics of the Myri Kara, according to Dr. Abigail Rock. Uh, a, Mahari Kara s- sticks to Pshat much more so than Rashi, and he feels no obligation to cite any Drash at all. In this, his commentary may be considered trailblazing. Again, he may have been Rashbam's influence. Rashbam may have been influenced by him. Um, yes, that is the same sentence twice, but whatever. Um, he be- The Mahari Kara, uh, maybe it's Mahari Kara, I don't know. Uh, he bases, you know, his... Uh, you know, opposition to Drash, uh, his reliance on Pshat and, you know, non-reliance on Drash on two assumptions, one of which is, you know, you'll find in other ones, and one of which I think is unique. Uh, first assumption is even the sages who wrote the Madrashim believe that Pshat is the essence. The aim of Drash is only for ethical purposes, and I would add also for, like, uh, halakh derivation purposes, uh, to make the law great and glorious, which is a quote from a Pasuk, and not to provide an explanation that is missing in Tanakh. Uh, again, the Maori Kara, much like Rashbam, believes that the main point of the text is uh, Pshat, and that Drash is there for the purposes of, you know, Chazal deriving halacha and deriving, you know, ethical ideas, uh, but it's not to provide an explanation that's missing in Tanakh. Um, so the second assumption, which I think, you know, I could be wrong, but is unique, uh, at least from what I've seen, Tanakh does not require external facts in order to explain it. It cannot be that the verse speaks ambiguously and relies on agotic material in order to be understood. Uh, this quote from Dr. Rock. Uh, far as I can tell, that is a unique formulation that I don't know necessarily if Rishbam would agree with. I don't know if Rishbam would necessarily agree with, like, um, you know, that, uh, Tanakh is a self-contained text that doesn't need explanation. Uh, I don't know if he would agree with that because he needs that, you know, derivations for halacha. Um, I will say that this idea, this assumption is educationally valuable. And this is why I, you know, prefer to teach Pshat when I'm teaching Tanakh. 
um, when you teach kids shot, uh, when you teach kids Tanakh with drash, um, you're not giving kids the ability to look at the text and decide for themselves uh, whether your approach is right. Um, you're making yourself indispensable as a teacher in telling them like, oh, well, the Midrash says, you know, something that is against the original text, against the uh, simple meaning of the text. When you're teaching, you want kids to be able to see inside uh, where the explanation is coming from, where, you know, where you're getting your understanding of the text. They could understand how Midrashim work later on, but when I'm teaching, you know, especially kids uh, who don't have like this broad knowledge of Midrashim, I want them to to be able to see how understandings of the text are coming without having to like resort to Midrashim. I tell this story a lot um, in the youth meeting I went to when I grew up. There was, you know, uh, a rabbi who would ask like uh, trivia questions on the uh, Torah reading. Um, and, you know, you get like, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you got anything for answering the questions correctly. And he would ask questions like, where is there a reference to learning Torah in this Aliyah? And the answer would be like, uh, it talks about water. And the Gemara tells us that water is a metaphor for Torah. No kid is answering that unless their dad whispered it to them, right? Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of a tangent, but that's you know, the importance of this assumption that Tanakh does not require external facts means that when you're teaching Tanakh, you can you know, present it to kids in a way that they have the ability to understand how you're reading it. Okay, what makes the Mari Karags uh, unique? We're going to go back to Dr. Rock's, you know, three characteristics. Um, you know, characteristic two, Mari Kara displays great sensitivity to literary technique and style. Um, she goes through a number of examples, which I encourage you to read. Uh, but basically, I'll sum it up for you outside. He's aware of literary devices like alliteration, rhythm, meter, literary structure, uh, and basically his awareness of artistic expression as opposed to narrative expression. Um, his you know awareness that like it's not just the story, but how you're telling it uh, makes him pretty unique. There are, you know Ramban will pick up on narrative expression a lot, and you know we're gonna see other people pick up on narrative expression of like, you know, this guy in the story is reference is, you know, uh, parallel to this guy in the story. These events are parallel to these events. Marikara is one who will pick up on like, um, you know, this Pusuk, you know, rhymes or like, you know, uh, the, the way that this Pusuk is phrased maintains meter in the second part, or like, you know, the word, this word was chosen because it's alliterative to the other words in the Pusuk. Um, Marikara is unique in that respect. Another thing that makes him unique, again, quoting Dr. Rock, Marikara delineates exegetical principles that may be applied elsewhere in Tanakh. He's very methodologically aware. Um, stuff like if a detail seems extraneous, it's setting something up for later. Those of you who go to TV tropes uh, will recognize this as a trope called Chekhov's Gun, which is based on a quote from, uh, you know, Russian author, I'm blanking on his first, I think it's Anton, Anton Chekhov, which means, which is, uh, the rule is that if a gun is put down in the first act, it must go off by the last. Like, uh, Marikara will uh, point out that, like, oh, that detail that seems extraneous, that's because it's going to be important later. Um, when would you use him? You want Pshat and Nach. Uh, I don't, we don't have Rushbaum on Nach, so he would fulfill the same purpose as Rushbaum on Nach. Uh, you would also use him if you're trying to uh, find someone who notices literary qualities. If you have a sense that, like, 
oh, the reason why this word was chosen because it's alliterative or it rhymes or something like that. If something sounds like it might be poetic, uh, check with a Maori Kara would checking with a Maori Kara would be a good strategy. Okay, moving on. Bahor uh, Shore. Okay, uh, who is he? Uh, Rav Yosef or- Orleans. Uh, last name comes from the blessing given to the tribe of Joseph by Moses. Uh, so it's, you know, a nickname. It's like sort of a nickname for Yosef. It's not exactly a nickname because people are like, hey, Bakoshar, what's up? But, uh, you know, that's the name he chose for his commentary based on his, you know, first name. Uh, we don't know all that much about his life. Uh, born in 1140, uh, he corresponded with Rabbeinu Tam, who seems to have respected him, uh, which is uh, impressive because Rabbeinu Tam... Uh, Rabbeinu Tam was a hard man to impress. We're going to, I keep saying this a lot, we're going to get to Rabbeinu Tam. I'm very excited to discuss Rabbeinu Tam. Um, Rabbeinu Tam was a hard man to impress. Uh, Bechorshar also wrote uh, liturgical poetry, uh, the theme of which was basically medieval Ashkenaz is a sucky place to live. Uh, No arguments there. Uh, A lot of his uh, poetry is uh, historical sources for the type of you know, things that people in medieval Ashkenaz went through. Uh, you know, he can tell he's a creative type. Uh, he will write a little poem at the end of each Parsha, uh, you know, which uh, I don't have the, the the poetic style. I didn't write that part of the script, but if I remember correctly, like, it will end on the name of the Parsha. He's pretty cool. Um, so what does he do? Uh Middle, he's a middle path between Rashi, the approach of Rashi and Rashbam Mari Kara. Um, he will cite Midrashim to explain Pshat, uh, even though I, that's what I said Rashi does. I said that Rashi will cite Midrashim to explain Pshat, as opposed to Rashbam, who doesn't use Midrashim at all, and as opposed to Rashi in this view, who, you know, will bring Midrashim that don't necessarily have to do with Pshat. Um, you know, that's a discussion in the scholarship as to whether Rashi is always explaining Pshat, the approach that I was, you know, raised in or brought up with or, you know, taught was that Rashi is always answering Pshat with his Midrashim. But, you know, he's, Bechorshor is definitely, uh, you know, a middle path between Rashi and uh, Rashbam slash Mari Kara's approaches. Um, Mari Kara, uh, not Mari Kara, sorry, Bechor Shor, uh, is also of the belief that the Torah does not have extraneous information, uh, a concept known as omnisignificance, omni coming from all, significance coming from significance. Um, that's going to be, you know, a primary motivator for when he comments. Um, so, uh, you know, that's one of the things that is going to motivate his commentary, okay? Um, now, that doesn't make him that much different from everybody else, but it will mean that he's not willing to just say that an extraneous detail is, you know, uh, just for artistic merit. He's there. It, everything is there for a reason. According, every there, everything is there for like a, you know, Torah reason, according to uh, Bechor Shor. The main thing that is unique about Bechor Shor, and this makes him pretty cool, uh, he's very psychologically astute, and astute in general, but let's start with psychologically astute. He is very good at getting into the minds of his characters. I'll give, uh, I'll give you an example. 
I'll, I'll quote from uh, uh, Dr. Rock, okay? Another example is his explanation of the fact that Tamar chooses to seduce Yehuda specifically at the time when he is sharing his sheep. Just, you know, side point, Tamar is, you know, Yehuda's daughter-in-law and she wants him to, uh, you know, fulfill his Yubim obligations and, you know, the whole story of Tamar and Yehuda, uh, Yehuda and Tamar, uh, which, um, you know, I don't know if you uh, never got around to the stuff you skipped in fourth grade, but you should read the story of Yehuda and Tamar. Um, so... His example of his so Behorshor's explanation of why Tamar chooses to seduce Yehuda, specifically at the time he's sharing his sheep, quote, at the sheep sharing time they were happy and would make big meals. When a person rejoices, his lusts overwhelm him, and therefore she chose for herself sheep sharing time. So that shows you Behorshor is willing to use psychological reasons uh, to explain what's going on in the Torah. It's not that, you know, it happened to be sheep sharing time, it's that let me get into the mind of Tamar. What is she doing? She's trying to seduce Yehuda. What, what time would she pick? She would pick sheep sharing time because everybody's having a good meal. Everybody's having a good time. Maybe some wine is going on. Uh, and, you know, therefore she uh, she picked sheep sharing time. Um, he's also a student in his use of realistic explanations. Um, explanations that, you know, make sense on a very, you know, realistic level. Things that would like, oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, when Yis so here's an example, again, quoting Dr. Rock. When Yitzchak seeks to bless Esav, he says to him, prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die. Uh, why is there a need for a meal at the time of the blessing? Bechorshor uh, uh, explains it the following way. It is the way of aristocrats to prepare a feast when they receive a noble title. So there he's using like norms and expectations of his era or like things that were going around and like, okay, here's why you, uh, you here's why he would ask Aesop to serve food is because Aesop receive, is receiving a new title and it's the way of the aristocrat, aristocrats to prepare, aristocrats, this is not a Disney movie, okay? To, uh, it's the way of the aristocrats to prepare a feast when they receive a noble title. Um, again, a student attentive in general. I'm quoting Dr. Rock here. Many times, Bahorshor provides a simple reading of the verse that is so convincing that after reading his words, one is hard-pressed to understand the text in any other way. For example, uh, Bahorshor explains the words of Paro's ministers, and there is no one to interpret it. This is talking about um, when Yosef is in the prison with Paro's ministers who have been sent there uh, by Paro. And they have dreams that they uh, want to interpret, and they say there is no one to interpret it. What's Bechorshor's comment? This is because we are in the prison, for if we were not in the prison, we would go to the adepts and the sages. Um, that makes perfect sense, right? Uh, that explains why they said there is no one to interpret it, because we're in prison. If we weren't in prison, we would go somewhere else. We would go to the magicians and whatever, whatever an adept is. Uh, it's not a word I'm familiar with, but that's what's in the article, okay? Um, other things that Bechorshur will do, he uh, reinterprets miracles naturalistically, which is uh, unique for an Ashkenazi commentator. Um, he'll give reasons for commandments, uh, and uh, he engages in anti-Christian polemic, which may be one of the primary motivating factors for why he wrote a commentary to begin with. Um, so when would you use him? Um, you want something psychologically astute or realistic explanation for something, and also because Bechorshor is not quoted that often, uh, you want something a little bit off the beaten path. Uh, and also, if you want, you know, how a naturalistic explanation of a miracle would happen, or, uh, you know, reasons for commandments according to, like, an Ashkenazi philosophical way of viewing things, um, 
that's when you would use Bechor Shur. Moving on, uh, Radak, uh, Rav David Kimchi uh, from Provence, lives 1160 to 1235. Provence is the Sephardic part of Ashkenaz or the Ashkenazi part of Sephard. Um, he's from the same place Ramban is from. Uh, he comes from a distinguished family of grammarians and exegetes. Um, okay, he wrote two grammar books, which you could buy. Uh, the fact that you can buy them means that they were preserved through the medieval era, which means they're important. Okay, uh, one book is called Sefer Hadikduk, the book of grammar, and one book is called the Sefer Hasharashim, the book of roots. It's you know, if you know how Hebrew works, it works with like trilateral roots, and he you know compiled a whole book of them. Uh, those books are combined into Sefer HaMichlul, and it's super, super important and still super useful. Um, we have Radak on all of Nevi'im, uh, Bereshit, uh, Tehillim, and Divrei Yamim. So we're missing him on four books of the Torah and most of Ketuvim. So what does he do? Okay, He's a Pshat-based commentary. He will bring down Drash, but does not think it's Pshat. Uh, he says at one point in his intro, I'll bring down some Drash for the people that like that sort of thing. Uh, his job, he sees his job as I'm interpreting Pshat. Uh, maybe I'll bring down some drash every so often if you're into that sort of thing. Um, he's a Pshat-based commentator. Uh, he is very a very strong uh, foundation of his commentary is he believes that there's a moral and an ethical basis to the Torah. Uh, he believes that practice is preferable to study, which um, makes him out of sync with, you know, uh, so, uh, a lot of Jewish thoughts since the 1800s. Um, and he believes that the Torah is there to teach ethics. Uh, for some of you, this is going to be like, well, duh. For some of you, this is going to be that that's heresy. Whatever. Radak, we're, you know, he's part of the canon. Okay? Uh, he's not afraid to criticize biblical characters. Uh, he Part of his seeing the Torah as, you know, teaching ethics is that sometimes people mess up and we learn from them messing up. This, again, this is the kind of thing where you're either like, duh, or like, that's heresy. But, you know, redox of the canon. Um, he will see repetition as artistic, not as meaningful. Um, as opposed to the guys like Rashi, who uh, will see, like, each word having its own significance. Uh, Radak is sometimes going to be like, okay, that's an artistic choice. Uh, so not omnisignificant like, you know, the, uh, like the Mari Kara, Okay. Uh, also will engage in anti-Christian polemic. Okay, when to use him? Um, I'm going to, you know, say something a little, like, based on my own opinion and not really based on, you know, academic whatever, but, like, he does nothing really fancy. I wanted to do a full episode on the Red Dock, but I couldn't find, like, a fun hook to talk about. Um, he's really great as a baseline shot. In other words, if you want to understand, like... In the absence of like a specific methodology, what is the pshat of this uh, pshat of this? So that I can understand like what is Rashi doing to the pshat? What is Ramban doing to the pshat? What is you know this commentator doing to the pshat? Use Radak. Uh, you know, in the courses I took, uh, the the academic courses I took on like uh, NYU on you know uh, Nach, uh, my sense was the Radak function in that way. That like okay, read the redact to get like how typical you know how what's a typical shot on this, and then we'll see like you know how different other people do that based on their ideologies. Um, so the redact, the redact is boring, but like that's good. Okay, now 
Ibn Kasbi. Ibn Kasbi is not boring, okay? Rav Yosef Ibn Kasbi uh, uh, lived from 1279 to 1340 uh, in Largentore, Provence. Apparently, that means silver, so Kasbi was named after where he lived, okay? Um, he's very prolific. He started writing at 17. He wrote 30 volumes of grammar, philosophy, biblical commentary. Um, he talks in first person as opposed to like telling you like this is the shot. He's like, I believe the shot is this, okay? And um, he reveals a lot about his persona personality and not all of it is complimentary, okay? He's, sorry for the train in the background. Uh, that's just where I live now, okay? Um, it's clear that he's very lonely. Uh, he talks about being lonely a lot, but he's also, uh, he also has that intellectual snobbery we saw with the Ibn Ezra of like, nobody's willing to, nobody is as smart as I am and I am alone for that reason. But Ibn Kasvi's on another level, okay? Uh, here's a quote from him taken from Dr. Rock's article on him, okay? Quote, my neighbors and acquaintances know that I have never in my life desired to show myself to all people because I have no desire to juxtapose two opposites. And I know that this is the general rule. There are intelligent people and fools, and the fools are their majority. Therefore, my custom has been to minimize communication with other people, for I am very careful to avoid acting or speaking haughtily. Nevertheless, I do not regret at all my superiority over horses and mules. Okay, so, you know, I don't want to appear haughty, but, like, I don't talk to other people because they're not worth my time and they're horses and mules. Um, he also doesn't have nice things to say about non-Jews, uh, which may be a continuation of the general theme of, you know, misanthropy, uh, but he may have just been a Jew living in the medieval era. There wasn't a lot of nice things to say about non-Jews because there wasn't a lot of nice things to say about non-Jews, okay? More troubling than that is that he's kind of a misogynist. Uh, Dr. Rock quotes a bunch of examples of this, and, and you know, I'm... I don't use that label flippantly. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, oh, this, you know, Gemara says one thing, therefore the Gemara is misogynist. There's a lot of, you know, things that we need to talk about, context, whatever. This, the label fits with Ibn Kasbi, you know, regretfully, okay? Um, Dr. Rock quotes a bunch of examples of this. I'll quote one, okay? There is no doubt that the Council of Women is categorically bad, whether inferior or shameful or fatal, as with the course of Chava, who gave to her husband from the tree and the counsel of Eo's wife. Fortunate is he who escapes their clutches. Okay. Um, so, interestingly, Dr. Rock's doctoral thesis was on, was on Ibn Kasbi. I know this because I got her help on something indirectly. I, you know, needed uh, a quote from Ibn Kasbi for a Dvar Torah that I was doing, and I asked... Rabbi Huda Rock, who was in the back of the base medrash that I learned in at the time, he said, oh, my wife wrote her thesis on Ibn Kasbi and, like, you know, did a, um, you know, a critical version of his commentary. Um, and, uh, you know, Dr. Rock, Dr. Avigali Rock was a woman and, you know, did her thesis on Ibn Kasbi, who was kind of a misogynist. Um, I think that's awesome. I think it's awesome that uh, she reclaimed him. And I think... We ought to recognize the strength of character of not only Dr. Rock, but of women Talmidot Chachamim, who, you know, Talmidot Chachamim, Talmidot Chachamot. I'm told that there's a debate as to how to grammar that. I'm not a grammar person. Um, and, you know, these pe the, these women who are uh, being mysterious nevish to learn, and they love Torah despite all of this, despite, besides the fact that, you know, 
communal norms are, you know, acting against them and, you know, society doesn't view it as kindly as it should. Um, you know, the fact that every time they open a commentary, there is a danger of seeing something which is just, you know, denigrates them as a person. Uh, no man who learns Torah, I honestly believe, can hold a handle, candle to the mysterious nefesh that women go through to do the same things. Um, like I once heard, uh, you know, someone, uh, you know, someone got up and was discussing uh, how uh, a uh, rabbi, uh, rabbi, uh, okay, I forgot the name, I'm blanking on the name, but she got up and said that like when she first started uh, learning suos that like, each page like got up and slapped her um, because you know the, the things that were being discussed and the way that it was being discussed and to continue learning through that anyway um, you know is a strength of character they think people should recognize um, and you know when we talk about like woman learn uh, woman learning and you know uh, women's place in the community like keep in mind that like the people who are agitating for their place at the table are the people who are you know, love Torah so much they're willing to put up with this stuff. And I think that's worthy of our respect. And I'm going to use my platform to say that. Also, while I'm here, um, I also want to caution people who may be getting the wrong idea that I'm not talking about the faults of a biblical commentator like Ibn Kasvi to drag him down to my level or to call him out for being problematic or to kick him out of the canon. Uh, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. I revere the human beings that make up the Jewish canon. But my reverence for them is as human beings, not as demigods. Understanding these people in all their complexity, in all the ways that us, you know, frail, weak human beings try to hold transcendence within ourselves, and the way that different personality types struggle to find their place in the divine order, how distinct and strong character traits try to align themselves in the pursuit of greatness, that makes me more reverent, not less. If our sages were perfect people who never had trials, uh, uh, who never had character traits and issues that needed to be overcome, I'd respect them less, not more. Obviously, there's a line at which there is no return, where whatever Torah you've taught no longer matters, and there are, you know, examples of which abound. But for whatever reason, you know, and maybe this is not my decision to make in the long run, but I'm not comfortable placing Ibn Cosby beyond that line. As to whether you do, that's your choice. But I'm going to continue talking about who he was as a commentator and what he does and what are interesting things about him. And my hope is that you're able to respect him as you know a person who was trying their best to figure out what God wanted of him and to expand your idea of what fits into the Jewish canon. Um, all right, but... You know, going back to the subject at hand, his attitude may be why he's not as influential. And among later commentators, only a Barbanel quotes him and not by name. Um, you know, despite all of that, he is pretty funny. Um, when talking about, uh, you know, uh, Peleg uh, in, you know, the, the list, the, uh, you know, the wife of Peleg in the list of, you know, genealogy of the beginning of Beratius, he writes, We are witnesses today to the honor of our ancestress, the wife of Peleg, that she was righteous and did not stray. In other words, we Hebrews may be certain that our divisive and contentious activity testifies that we're truly descended from Peleg, whose name means division, son of Aver. Okay, so he's making a joke about how, like, divided the Jewish community is uh, based on, like, you know, uh, Aver, 
uh, was descended from Peleg, and Peleg means division. Okay. So, enough about his personality. What does he do? Um, so his commentary is aimed at the elite. There's a lot of interwoven concepts. There's a lot that you need to know before you start learning him. Uh, and a lot of things left for you to figure out. And he does this on purpose because, you know, he's the only intelligent one and he only wants to talk to people who are intelligent. Um, but he believes that the Torah is aimed for the masses, not for the elite. And it's meant as a corrective for the masses. And only some things in the Torah are meant for the elite. You know, I think this is encouraging in general. It shows that Judaism necessarily places limits on elitism. You can be personality-wise, the most elitist, intellectually snobby person you can, but there's a limit on how much you can justify that. And you have to, at a certain point, say that, like, the Torah is not meant just for the elite, it's meant for the masses. Um, and, you know, if you could go further in your elitism, I think Ibn Kasvi would have went there. He was just that sort of person. Um, what does he do in his commentary? Okay. Uh, Pshat-oriented, uh, but, but he rejects allegorical approaches. In other words, he's... Um, he's shot oriented, but when he comes across something that, you know, is not rational, is, is not rationalistic, uh, he rejects the idea that like, oh, we need to interpret this allegorically. No, it's, that's not shot. As we've said before, there's a different, a lot of people like to fold in the concepts of shot and rationality. Those are not necessarily the same thing. And Ibn Kasvi is a good example of that. Um, he has pretty much no respect for prior authorities, um, to be expected. Um, does some cool things though. Um, he uses things that he learned on a trip to Egypt to explain reality and chumash. Um, one of the, he's also one of the more explicitly philosophical commentators, uh, and he defends you know the philosophic school of understanding the Torah from charges of rampant allegoricism. There was a lot of charges of you know at people who interpreted the Torah according to a philosophical lens that they were interpreting all the Torah allegorically to the point that there was no reality left. That, like, you know, uh, this mitzvah is an allegory for, like, you know, how reason, whatever, and then, therefore, we don't have to do it. Um, and Ibn Kasvi's defending that school against those charges. Um, his comments are, you know, often original and prefigure modern ideas and pay attention to stuff that no one else does. Um, I'll give you the example that I was asking from, uh, you know, Rabbi and Dr. Rock when I wrote that Dvar Torah, uh, you know, in yeshiva, okay? Um, there's a uh, cantillation sign, a trup sign called the Shalshelis, which appears very, very few times in Tanakh. Uh, in, in Tanakh. Um, and it's slain like Shalshelis. I know, very off tune, okay? Um, Ibn Kasvi uses the... Uh, looks at that Shalshelis as a psychological insight. Um, for three of the four that are in Tanakh, it works. For the fourth one, you got to kind of force it in there. But a bunch of the times that the uh, Shalshelis is used, a character is hesitant about something. And Ibn Kasvi sees that in the way that you lane it. Like, I don't, I, I don't know. It's like Shalshelis. Right? So, uh, for example, um, when Yosef refuses to sleep with uh, Ashes Potiphar, um, you know, the word, and he refused has a shalshalis on it. And Ibn Qasim will connect that to the idea that, uh, Yosef was like almost giving into temptation. Um, you know, that's just one example. Okay. Um, 
And there are a lot of different, there are a lot of things beyond that of, of interesting things that Ibn Cosby does. And again, I invite you to read Dr. Rock's article, um, being as she wrote her dissertation on uh, Ibn Cosby, you're going to get more there than you're going to get here. Uh, but I just want to give you like a basic overview of uh, what Ibn Kos- who Ibn Cosby is and what he does. Uh, when would you use him? Uh, when you want shot that it's not reliant on allegory. When you want shot in uh, in a text, but you don't want like an allegorical explanation. Yes, yeah, so it's the same sentence expanded. Okay. Um, you want a philosophical understanding of the text. We said that for El Bagh, Ibn Kosby, even more so. Uh, and again, because he's not quoted so often, you want some, uh, you know if you want something that is off the beaten path, look at Ibn Kosby. Okay, number six uh, that we're doing today, Rabinu Bacha. Okay, uh, who was he? Uh, Bacha bin Asher, 1255 to 1340, uh, Saragossa, Spain. Uh, he's a student of the Rashba, uh, but he's, and the Rashba is like a famous halachas, which we, he, he'll be in another episode. Um, but he's, the Rabinu Bacha is not a halachist. Uh, he takes the Ramban as his role model, I don't know exactly what that means, but that was in all the biographies that I saw of him. Uh, so I figure at some point in his writings, he's like, I'm going to use the Ramban as my role model. And they decided to use that phrase. So I'm going to use that phrase. Okay. And his commentary, I would describe as sort of a software update on what the Ramban does. We talked about the Ramban, uh, you know, giving you a um, multi-layered understanding of the text. He's giving you, you know, the Pshat according to Rashi, Pshat according to Ibn Ezra, um, you know, the Midrash Chazal, then Kabbalistic ideas, and then, you know, his own Pshat. Um, Rabinu Bachya takes that and, you know, updates it. Uh, he begins each Parsha with an overview of what topics are going to be covered, which is very helpful. Um, and then he has a four-tiered approach to his commentary. Uh, he starts with Pshat. He usually follows Rashi. Um, he'll st- he'll continue with you know uh, drash, okay. He'll give an exhaustive list of the ex- uh, relevant midrashim, usually just a quotation. So it's more of a reference than a commentary, which honestly makes it more useful. Uh, he'll then give you know uh, the next layer is philosophy slash logic, where he tries to show that philosophical truth is already present in the text. Uh, and then the last layer is Kabbalah, uh, the path of light. The deeper meaning of the text is revealed in this manner. Uh, you know, the Rashba has similar comments uh, in some of his Chuvot uh, where somebody asks him about like, you know, Pshad and Chumash, which happens sometimes. Um, so he's in line with the Rashba's thoughts on this. Um, he, in terms of uh, Kabbalah, he doesn't cite his sources so much. Um, occasionally, the Bahir... Uh, occasionally the Ramban. He quotes the Zohar all of twice. Um, so he, I'm told that his Kabbalah uh, commentary uh, is sort of a good compilation of stuff that we wouldn't know about except for Rabbeinu Bachya. Um, and the reason why he does all these levels is because he believes each of those is indispensable towards understanding the text. Um, you know, so it's a software update on the Ramban. He's not the Ramban. Uh, no one is. Uh, and he's not going to give you the, you know, level of shot that the Ramban does. You know, the, the Ramban will give you, uh, will, you know, cut through all of it and give you 
his own explanation that like makes everything make sense. Rabbeinu Bachya is more a compilation, uh, but it's an excellent, excellent reference. Uh, if you want to find like all the sources on a specific pasuk, if you want like an exhaustive view of what everything is, uh, uh, everything on that pasuk, Rabbeinu Bachya is an excellent place to start. Um, so you know. Um, also, in terms, if you're looking for like capitalistic stuff uh, that we don't have anywhere else, um, you know, that's when you use Rabbeinu Bachya. Rabbeinu Bachya, more than other, any other commentator, is a reference. Um, so that's the commentators that we're going to deal with now. Uh, I do have plans to eventually get back to some other commentators from the medieval era or like before the medieval era. Uh, Targumim, Midrashim, uh, Ashkenazi, Nanpshat, uh, stuff like Dasikanim and the Maharami Ranberg. Uh, but we've covered a lot of the canon. Uh, I'm pretty sure, like, most of the... We've covered most of the medieval commentators that people actually read. Um, the canon is smaller than you'd expect for the medieval commentators because what survived is what deserved to survive, for the most part. Okay? Um, so, now I just want to end up... This is going to be the end of our medieval section. Uh, the next commentator I plan on doing, El Barbanel, is sort of going to be a... He kind of lives in the medieval era. He's sort of the bridge between the medieval era and the modern era, which will serve as an introduction to the modern era of commentary. Uh, but I want to sum up what I want you to take from this, uh, from the past couple of... Ep the, the past episodes that we've done on medieval commentary. Um, I want you to think about having a mental flowchart. What do I mean by this? Okay, um, Let's say you're asked to give a Dvartor in the Parsha, and you found something that might be the start of a good Dvartor, but you don't know where to look for the kind of answer you want. Or you're reading the Parsha, and you have a question, and you want to know who would answer this type of question, and you want to know like uh, who would answer this sort of question in the type of way that I want. Uh, I want you to be able not just to, you know, memorize... I don't want you to memorize these people's, like, names and dates. I, I want you to be able to, f you know, mentally figure out where am I going to look for each... Uh, e where am I going to look when I have this type of question? Where am I going to look when I want this type of answer? Where am I going to look when this problem presents itself, okay? So let's walk through some hypotheticals. Okay, I want to know how most people understand Chumash. Rashi. Done. Okay? I want Pshat without Drash. Okay? So Rashbam, Ibn Ezra, if it's narrative. If it's Halacha, then, you know, then uh, you want Rashbam. Okay? Mari Kara for, you know, Pshat without Drash. If it's if it's not. Okay? I see a story where something happens irrational, uh, like a miracle, and I want a rational, naturalistic explanation of something. You're going to go to the Ralbag, you're going to go to Sajigon, you're going to go to Bechor Shore. Hi, this is Akiva Weisinger, and uh, the guy who does this podcast. And if you liked what you heard, uh, please consider uh, subscribing to our Patreon, uh, which would help us uh, grow and uh, give us money to invest in this podcast, buying books, buying uh, other supplies, and uh, it would, you know, uh, help me continue to uh, help me focus on this podcast more exclusively. Um, so if you like what you heard, uh, go to patreon.com, uh, Misfit Torah, and uh, 
sign up, you can sign up for like $5, and there's going to be stuff that will show up just for Patreon subscribers, uh, and, uh, feel, you know, it'll help me out. All right, patreon.com slash misfittower.